surgical anesthesia teams at every single bed, nursing, operating rooms all standing up, ready to go. And then it was, gee, every day, every other day, we had another busload coming in. The ICUs filled up. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, WarDocs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome the 41st Surgeon General of the U.S. Army, Dr. Kevin C. Kiley, to War Docs. A graduate of Georgetown University School of Medicine, Dr. Kiley completed his OBGYN residency at William Beaumont Army Medical Center. Among his many assignments was the distinction of serving concurrently as the commander of the 10th Medical Battalion, while also serving as a division surgeon for the newly activated 10th Mountain Division. He also commanded the 15th Evacuation Hospital, which deployed to Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm in 1991. Following graduation from the War College, he went on to command Longstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany, the AMED Center and School at Fort Sam, and Walter Reed Army Medical Center in the North Atlantic Regional Medical Command. After serving as Army Surgeon General, he went on to chair the Department of OBGYN at Albany Medical College. You can read his full bio at wardocspodcast.com. On this episode of War Docs, we are joined by Dr. Kevin Kiley, the 41st Army Surgeon General. Dr. Kiley, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here. You shared with us an experience with your first assignment when you were in Korea, when you met the Surgeon General, and how his advice had led you on a pathway to become the 41st Surgeon General. That's an amazing story. And I I got over to Korea. It was the U.S. Army Hospital Seoul, the 121 VAC Hospital, a T.O.N.E. unit inserted in that hospital. And the first year, Team Spirit 81, I went out as staff surgeon slash gynecologist for a static display. And, and we did a pretty good job. I mean, we took out 20 beds and we set up an operating room. Cycled through the next year and uh, the new commander there, General Sider, said, hey, listen, I want you to go be in charge of this. I want you to be the OIC, not the commander, but the OIC. I said, sure, go ahead. I had spent many a night in labor and delivery where you couldn't uh, be, this is an 8081, you could not be on the streets of Seoul after midnight. So if I was in LMD, covering LMD for the night, I was in there. So I knocked off the advanced course by correspondence. So, you know, I knew everything there was to know about the Army at that point. So the first thing I did was generate an op order. I took it into General Sider. He said, that's going to be $27,000. I said, yes, sir. He said, all right, well, go ahead. I said, sir, I'll I'll try to bring it all back. But the mission I gave the the staff, just a wonderful staff of doctors and nurses, is uh, the standard is providing real-world health care to the same standards as U.S. Army Hospital sold, not a static display. Everybody jumped in right up to their eyebrows on that. Uh, you know, I had, I had an orthopedic surgeon. There was no uh, orthopedic traction in the TO, and he, he built one out of aluminum rods and stuff. And sure enough, we're out there, and a Jeep turns over, and a Katusa, Korean augmentation of U.S. forces, uh, had, a, had a femur fracture. They took him to the operating room, put a spinal in, and pinned his, uh, his femur and put him in that traction. And, you know, I had my camera, I was taking pictures of everything, you know, for, for posterity. And fast forward to after a very successful deployment, 
because these young doctors, nurses, and medics were just superb. The new Surgeon General arrives, General Mittemeyer, and General Sider says, uh, Colonel at the time says, hey, I want you and uh, Ed Bland, my XO, to, to do a briefing. So we kind of did a Huntley and Brinkley with him and showed him slides to include this uh, Katusa. But uh, there he was in, in, in this hip cast and pinned on this uh, structure. And Surgeon General stopped me. He said, uh, now, what you've done that was an American soldier. I said, absolutely, sir. I had total confidence in this crew. Uh, that operating room, uh, I would have been operated on in that room. He said, okay. So I finished the brief. I go back to my office. I figured, okay, I'm done with that. Now I got to move on to other things. And about 1230, I get a phone call from uh, the uh, secretary to, to, to Colonel Sider, who says, uh, you know, if, if you have some time, uh, the Surgeon General likes to see you at one o'clock. I said, well, I, I could probably carve out a little bit of time for the Surgeon General. I think I was a brand new major. So I go down there. He takes me into the conference room, just me and him, sits down. He says, now, what's your next assignment? I said, well, sir, you know, I'm hoping to go back to William Beaumont, where I'd done my training to be faculty. He said, okay, you're going to do that. And he's got this little pad of paper, and he starts jotting down assignments. He says, after you're there for a couple of years, you need to go to Command General Staff College, and then you need to go command uh, a clinic. And then after that, you need to go be a DCCS at a large uh, medac. And then after that, you need to go to the work college. And then after that, you need to go command a hospital. And I'm sitting there going, you got to be kidding me. A three-star general's got the time to talk to, to a young major, you know, out over in Korea. And, and, you know, I still have that piece of paper stowed away as important papers. And I've told that story a couple of times. You try to learn from everybody you work with. And I, I learned a valuable lesson about not forgetting the young people, uh, the privates and the corporals and the lieutenants. And it just kind of reinforced my whole sense of belonging to the army and being part of the army. I'm very impressed. And of course, I've gotten to know him much, much better since then. He's just a real great American. But I just couldn't get over that. And um, it was a great operation. It was a great assignment. My wife was in it 100%, and we had a great tour. So we know that you made it to be the Surgeon General, the 41st yeah. Surgeon General. And for those who don't know, commanders often have coins that are made for their command. And on your Surgeon General coin, you have the words quality, discipline, empowerment, and service. Why are those words important to you? I've had a series of, of wonderful commands, uh, you know, Launch Stool and the European Regional Command and Fort Sam Houston and the uh, AMED Center of Excellence used to be the center in school and the North Atlantic. And I was trying to capture my philosophy, who I was, kind of what I expected, what I wanted to tell a group of my soldiers in an auditorium or in a formation somewhere about me and our command and what we were going to do. And so the, I, I call it quality empowerment, discipline, and service. And I would get up in front of the troops and say, look, you know, quality, everything you do, you do the, the very best that you can. Okay. I, I don't want to pe hear people sitting around going, oh, that's good enough for government. No, it's not good enough. Okay. You're taking care of lives of soldiers and their families and retirees, delivering babies, you're operating. These are critical things. And, you know, how would you feel if I came to you and said, uh, well, I, I just finished doing an operation on your mother. I'm a gynecologist, of course. And, you know, I, I got 80% of the bleeding stopped. I mean, that, that's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, I mean, she's in the ICU being transfused and we're hoping the other 20% will stop, but that's good enough for government work. I mean, you know, come on. So, but everything you do, whether it's in a PT formation, whether it's wearing a uniform or whether it's taking care of a patient, everything you do, you do the very best that you can from clinical operations to combat. Empowerment is something that it takes a deep breath for a commander 
to trust his subordinates and give them a mission, give them resources, and then say, here's what I want done. You guys go do it, figure it out. Nothing illegal, immoral, or illicit. Okay. We got regulations that give us guidance. If there's a problem that you're bumping up against a regulation, two things. One, there's always double paragraph EE that says in all other circumstances, you may do that. Or two, come back and see me and we'll work something. I got so many examples of that. Sergeant Bruce Russell, 10th Med, 10th Mountain Division, he single-handedly got a bunch of his NCOs and, and soldiers together and put on a division-level EFMB. He was in my ops shop in the 10th Med. EFMB, for those who are listening, might not be familiar with that. What What is EFMB? Uh, the, the Expert Field Medic Badge, which is a test of skills, land navigation, first aid, uh, resuscitation, PT test, weapons qualification, and the famous 12-mile road march in three hours, a whole host of things, NBC, et cetera, et cetera, a lot of intellectual and a lot of physical uh, challenges. And, and it's a big operation, division-wide. All the medics in the division want to attend it, so it's a large numbers, large throughput. you got graders, et cetera. And I go to Sergeant Russell every couple of days and say, Sergeant Russell, how are we doing on the CFMB? He said, no problem, sir, we got it. And I'll tell you, there is nothing more wonderful than to watch a capable non-commissioned officer take a group of officers uh, and non-commissioned officers and soldiers and execute a mission like Sergeant Russell did. That thing came off swimmingly. It was just brilliant. And I could have been back home in Washington, D.C., and it would have gone off just as well. And when I commanded MedCom, uh, you know, we were moving eight plus billion dollars around every year. And each year, as you know, the end of the fiscal year, September 30th, if you didn't spend it, you lost. And so I would task commanders to come up with lists of things. Things uh, that they needed that we couldn't finance. And then old Colonel Daryl Spencer and his comptroller shop would work 24-7 for weeks. And I swear to God, he closed out the fiscal year every day, plus or minus a dollar. And it was just brilliant. And I just trusted him to do that. I didn't micromanage him. So that's empowerment. And it, it goes all the way down to a, a sergeant giving a private a, a job, to a colonel giving some majors some responsibilities, to then Major General Schoolmaker giving his regional commander's process of uh, Financing. I mean, all of this stuff, just brilliant. Discipline is an interesting word. And I thought about that a little bit before I put it on there, because, you know, when you say discipline, the first thing that comes to your mind is George C. Scott in the movie Pat and slapping Tim Considine in the tent because he's got PTSD and screaming and hollering and, you know, make the other SOB die for his country kind of stuff. But I would say to the soldiers, look, you come to work every day in a proper uniform. You balance your checkbooks, okay? You stop at the stoplights and you obey the speed limits. You know, most people in the audience would roll their eyes at that one. I said, that's individual personal discipline. That, that's all that is. And I said, uh, you know, uh, then you get a group together, be it a ICU team or a, a platoon in a maneuver unit, and you instill some small unit discipline so that everybody's coming to work in a uniform. They're on time to the formations. They're doing those kind of things. And eventually that builds to large organizations that are disciplined. And so insubordination and, you know, un un undisciplined troops uh, was an anathema to me, slapping people with gloves. But um, just an inter interesting sideline on Patton, I, I did a, a project on him in the war college. And, and you know, all of this screaming and hollering. And they think he actually had chronic subdurals from falling off and getting kicked in the head with horses and some of his combat experiences. He'd have spontaneous crying episodes in the middle of a dinner somewhere uh, or hysterically start laughing. And there was some thought that some of this 
emotional uh, liability was associated with that. It's interesting how discipline can even come back to haunt you. Uh, a quick story out of 10th, uh, 10th Mountain Division. Uh, we were promoting an assistant division commander to brigadier general, and we had all this is we had the uh, battalion brigade commanders on formation online with their flags behind them. I was the far left unit. Right next to me were uh, 105 howitzers that were going to fire off salutes. So we ran through a practice and we fired off whatever it was 12, 18 rounds. And I mean, the cordite smoke you couldn't see us for a minute or two as the cordite waved across my unit so i went up to huddle up with the other battalion commanders and the, and the chief of staff and i said is there any way we can move the howitzers down a little bit well chief of staff talk about him later went up told the division commander of the 10th mountain division general carpenter kylie was down there complaining about the smoke that night at a reception with the battalion commanders and brigade commanders all carpenter walks up to me and he says um, i understand you having problems with the smoke i said sir you know it's not big deal i just thought maybe they could move them another 30 yards to the left. He said, you know, tomorrow during the ceremony, when those howitzers fire their blanks, I want, you know, I want you guys to put your protective masks on, pull them off your, pull them out of your uh, holsters and put them on. And I looked at him and said, I didn't even say yes, sir. I said, uh, I went over to my brigade commander, Joe King, just a wonderful discount commander. I said, sir, what do you think? He said, you're screwed. <laughs> I said, terrific. So the next day I had, you know, I had these two choices. I could either put masks on and not put masks on. And I made the decision. We were not going to embarrass this Colonel knowledge, Brigadier General, embarrassed the 10th Mountain Division by putting masks on. And so we're kind of in a break after one more practice before the official ceremony starts. A young soldier comes running out of the headquarters. He's small, little, white, World War II containment. And he's, he comes up to me, he says, are you Colonel Kiley? I said, yeah. He hands me this note and I open it up and it's a blue buck slip. It says, Doc, no masks equals no balls. C, which Carpenter. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm going, you know, I can't win for losing here. So, you know, we kind of coughed a little bit, but we did not put our protective masks on. And I looked back at that and said, you know, that, that took a little bit of self-discipline not to kind of be a jerk and put a protective mask on and ruin somebody's promotion. I established platoon sergeants in the 15th DVAC because we needed some chain of, con uh, a chain of command, some control, and some discipline in the organization that worked wonderfully. Finally, service. When you look at what happens around the world, when we lose soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines, uh, officer, NCO, and enlisted, they come back wounded to Walter Reed. And you say, well, why this guy? Why this young lady? And the answer is because because we send our very best around the world to protect us and to defend democracy. And and so I would say to the troops, look, you know, part of this is, is service. That, that's why they call it service. Extra hours, you lose a few of your freedoms uh, when you sign up and, and take the oath. But you know what? America is very, very proud of every single one. They're very proud of you because they understand either uh, intuitively or directly that there is service and sacrifice associated with us. And frankly, I didn't think we were saying that enough, so I wanted to make sure it was on the coin. So that's the long and the short of it, as they say. So you were the I, commander of the 15th Evacuation Hospital during the 100 Hours War Desert Storm when we invaded Iraq from Kuwait. What were you prepared to do, and are there any stories that come to your mind? You got a couple hours. I mean, this could go on. But again, another organization that pulled itself up, took in a whole host of profis. I had a great CT surgeon, Jim Amica. I had uh, Jim Pollard, who'd actually been a surgeon with me in Korea. I had great nurses, great medics. We pulled ourselves together and we got over there. We got set up in Log Base Charlie, right around in the 18th Airborne Corps, right in the middle of the 101st Airborne. And we had to have the engineers come in and drill 
tent peg holes for us because we were on rock. We set up latrines, set up showers. We got everything going. We were really ready to go. And, you know, I was getting sit reps uh, going to brigade updates. And I came back, said, okay, you know, it's going to start tomorrow. And the medevacs started coming in that first night. And I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't know what to expect. I don't know what's coming in. I'm in the ED with, you know, 10 resuscitative uh, cots and teams standing around. And they start wheeling Iraqis in. And these these guys are screaming. Some of them are hollering and screaming. And I'm thinking, okay, they, you know, they're, they're really looking to, to go visit Allah. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean, I think, you know, I was concerned they were suicidal. So I undid the cover on my uh, nine millimeter holster. I had a round uh, chambered and I, I still had the safety on, but I had my hand. On. I was waiting to see one of these guys pull a knife out or pull a grenade out and try to kill us. And I had this diminutive little, and again, I don't mean it pejoratively, but a little Kuwaiti standing next to me. Of course, they had no love loss for the Iraqis. And they're hollering and screaming and the, the nurses and doctors are trying to evaluate them. And none of them were too badly injured. I finally turned to the interpreter. I said, what are they saying? He said, oh, uh, they, they have to pee. They have to go to the bathroom. I said, what? They got to pee. So I told everybody, I said, hey, give them all urinals. They gave them all urinals. And within, you know, 15, 20 seconds, you could have heard a pin drop in the ED. They were all quiet, comfortable, happy to be alive. A lot of these were guys that had been scooped up off the farms to be part of the, of, of the Iraq army. And that was a, that was a, that could have been a near miss for Kevin. It would have been bad form for the commander shooting somebody in the emergency room because the guy had to pee. After 10th Med Battalion Command, you would have thought I was smart enough to put fireboxes under the uh, space heaters. And I didn't do that. And one of the space heaters started leak kerosene and the sergeant told the private, take it out. This was in a supply tent. There were four or five troops in there working, grounding their LCE. And the next thing I know, uh, this GP medium is burning and the uh, M16 rounds are popping off and cracking off and going through boxes and tents and then everywhere else. Two soldiers ran in and grabbed the rest of the LC and got them out of there. So the, the popping stopped and the, the tent burned down. And I, I put those two troops in for uh, heroism awards. They, they got our comms. But that was another close call. But for the most part, we did a good job. And we had a sister evac hospital with us, the 104th from Alabama. We had a thousand admissions, 500 operative procedures. Uh, the interesting thing was as a gynecologist, you know, a lot of transition in, in clinical medicine to uh, laparoscopy, to beta HCGs, urine and HCGs, you know, and then we'd have women soldiers come in and we'd have to explore them to rule out a top pregnancies, you know, something you wouldn't do anymore. We didn't have laparoscopic equipment, so orthopedic equipment that way, but given all that, uh, we did well. At one point, we had a ward full of women and their babies, and the nurses just did a great job with them, too. So I'm very proud of them. They, they really did a great job and didn't lose anybody. One of the interesting things that is notable on your resume is that you were the commander of the U.S. Army Medical Department Center and School, which is at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, in San Antonio, but that was on 9-11. And for the listeners, this is now referred to as the U.S. Army Medical Center of Excellence and is right. the largest medical education and training campus in the world, which produces nearly 35,000 medical professionals and graduates each year. Tell us what it was like to be the commander of this medical training center on 9-11, when you had to think about shifting from peacetime medical instruction to a new combat mission. I'll tell you, to be very honest with you, on 9-11, I wasn't there. I was in Fort Walton Beach, Florida at a special operations medical conference. And uh, I just got I done PT, cleaned up, and I was down in the conference room in the back. Maid comes in, says, sir, you know, General Parker, the other flag officer at the meeting, wants to see you in the bar. And I said, well, it's a little bit early to be drinking, but okay, let's go see what he's got. Well, he's in there with the TV on. First planes hit the tower. 
as we're standing there, the second plane hits the tower. I turned to the aide and I said, go pack. I said, call the airport, uh, get a rental car. And she said, yes, sir. I went up and packed. We had military vehicles at the conference. They drove us to the airport. I said, give me the biggest, fastest thing you got. I had to get through the police to get into the airport. They gave me a Lincoln Continental and I drove like a bat out of hell for 11 hours from Fort Walton Beach to Fort Sam Houston. And uh, I kept waiting for the state police to pull me over to escort me to the, like, give me a ticket and then escort me to the next state line. I didn't see a state policeman until I was in Side Texas, and that guy was pulling somebody else over. But halfway there, we stopped at a Taco Bell, and I got a burrito or something, a taco to slam down. And my aide got a taco salad. And we pull out, and we're on the highway heading heading west. And she says, "You know, sir, they, they didn't give me a fork or a spoon." So I pulled off the highway, went back into a Taco Bell. Said, "Give me a spoon." The guy looked at me like I was crazy. He gave me a spoon, and we headed out and got home safely about about one in the morning. And and this gets back to empowerment, trust, and quality and discipline. Frank Blakely, the chief of staff, my chief of staff, had locked the post down did all the right things. We had, as the days went on, you know, we, we secured it. Commissary, our PX sales dropped like a rock because nobody could get on post. At one point, you know, we had retired four, three, two stars at the uh, USAA tower building right off the edge of Fort Sam Houston. We briefed them and they all volunteered to take uh, take rotations uh, on the upper uh, balconies of the USAA uh, as spotters for us in case somebody tried to breach uh, Fort Sam Houston. I said, well, I, I don't, think we quite need that protective measure yet, but I'll call you if we do. But uh, the other big thing about about that job and about what was going on there was we had begun the process, the vision of Jim Peak to make our 68 whiskeys, combat medics, EMTB plus trained. Ryan Allgood, may he rest in peace, was a battalion commander of the 232. And, you know, he, he was he's the one that launched it. So here we were training medics, working on uh, tourniquets and, uh, you know, all the other things that we knew would, would become part of the uh, combat operation. And, you know, it gets back to where do you find these young people? I mean, I, I tell the story. I wanted to come down and visit some training at the 121 and Alpha Company. I called down. I got the first sergeant on the phone. I said, first sergeant is General Kindly. I, I, I let him down and watch some training. And the first sergeant, you know, it's just, oh, sir, that'd be so wonderful. Then he hangs up the phone and he goes, I'll be darn you. I can't believe I got so many things to do. The damn general's coming down. Standing next to him at the rigid position of parade rest is a young Private Jones who's finished basic training. He's, he's snowboarding for a day or two before his AIT rotation starts. So he's standing next to the, the desk quietly. The first sergeant looks at him and says, Jones, you know what a general officer is? And uh, Jones snaps to attention. There's the discipline. No, first sergeant, I do not know what a general officer is. So the first sergeant says, go out there, go, go out, uh, out the orderly room, go out to the street, stand there at the edge of the street. And when you see a big maroon van coming down with the big two stars on the license plate, you get that general up here ASAP. Yes, first sergeant. So this, this private goes running out there. He's standing on the edge of the street with his hands on his hips. He's looking both ways. And up over the hill, I come down and he steps out in the middle of the road. And he puts his arm up, his hand up to stop us. And my aide in the front seat's about to go, you know, cataclysmic. And I said, calm down, stop. Let's see what he wants. So the, the vehicle, the van stops in front of the private, who <clears throat> comes around to the side where I'm sitting. And he whirls his hand around, giving me the roll down the window sign. I roll down the window. The, the aide, again, wants to just climb through the window. At him. And this young soldier sticks his head in. He looks around. He looks at me. And he says, are you a general officer? I said, well, yes, I'm, I'm General Kiley. I'm, I'm the commanding general here. He says, you better get your ass up the hill. The first sergeant wants to see you ASAP. And I thought, you know, that's kind of a funny joke. It's the one I almost lost my iced tea on. But the truth was there's so much truth in that joke that there's a young soldier disciplined Obeying the direction of a competent non-commissioned officer. And that's why we're the best army in the world. 
You look at Russian techniques, they don't have sergeants. We have sergeants whom captains and sergeants run the army. And so that was part of the experience of watching the transformation of these young men and women from civilians, as some people like to say, to soldiers ready to go, trained, confident, capable. And uh, it was just a real honor and a pleasure to be there running. The installation was like being a mayor. That was that was a lot of fun, too. But I had great faculty, a great dean, great, great brigade commanders, great battalion commanders. I mean, you know, it's the same thing. It's just empowerment. So let's fast forward after 9-11. We wind up invading Afghanistan, invading Iraq. And your position during that time period is commanding Walter Reed, and then later being the MedCom commander as a surgeon general. How did the hospital at Walter Reed and Army Medicine in general shift from taking care of routine stuff to now having an influx of combat wounded from overseas. It was a somewhat staged response in that, remember, we uh, we took off for Afghanistan in 2002. I had uh, Commander Walter Reed from 2002, 2004, and it really got busy when we invaded Iraq in uh, 2003. And, uh, you know, the first bus loads came out of Andrews Air Force Base uh, loaded with soldiers. So we had had a sense that these young soldiers were surviving the battlefield. They were surviving the FST, Combat Support Hospital, initial triage surgery through Lawnstool and into Walter Reed. But many of them were going to still need intensive care and multiple surgical procedures. What changed with the invasion of Iraq was the volume. The volume really picked up. I can still see standing there that first night, our chief of surgery he had broken her ankle in the parking lot. And she was in one of those little scooters, you know, that you see in the uh, Safeways and stuff. And she was directing and stuff. We probably had 20 beds with surgical anesthesia teams at every single bed, nursing, uh, operating rooms all standing up, ready to go. There were some that wheeled in. They took one look at them and took them right to the operating room. And again, I say, I just stood around and let it ex execute. They knew what the mission was. We had the resources. And then it was, gee, every day, every other day, we had another busload coming in. The ICUs filled up. We made a very conscious decision over time to keep soldiers at Walter Reed at the Malone House until we were confident that they were well on their way to healing. And that was that was new. In the past, you'd discharge somebody from the hospital with a you know the fractured hip or leg or something or or that might need PT and OT. You might send them back to Scranton, Pennsylvania or, or Dubuque, Iowa, and they'd you know work with the VA. But we, we were concerned, particularly with the head injuries, that they'd be as recoverable and as recovered as they could before we let them out of our grip. And so we had a large number of soldiers on the post and we took very good care of them. We set up uh, management teams, uh, ombudsmen, um, healthcare finders, uh, navigators uh, in our nursing staff and carved all of that out of hide. And uh, they took very good care of the soldiers. You could probably count on one hand the number of soldiers we lost after they got to Waller Reed. Eventually, I don't know whether it was Jim Peake that did it or I did it, but we started making sure that Brooke and Madigan and uh, also got their fares of the casualties as they continue to roll in. But we, we probably put the uh, thousands of soldiers through Walter Reed. And they ramped right up. They ramped right up. The, the, the doctors, nurses, medics, there wasn't a single naysayer. Somewhere between empowerment, discipline, and service in this whole thing. I mean, they did it all of it. They did all of it. It's really phenomenal. And probably not well recognized. John Jaffin and I used to kid that we, we needed vests uh, that said, you know, Walmart greeters out the front of the hospital. Every time you turn around, somebody was coming, either a legislative, an executive branch, or a movie star. I mean, I got, I got pictures of every movie star, big wrestlers. I mean, all kinds of people. There's a lot 
lot of fun. I tell the story about President Bush visiting the first time. We worked our way through the Secret Service. Uh, he comes up. Uh, I'm escorting him into his soldier's room. And John says, sir, you know, would you get a little of that Purell on your hand? And there was nothing in the machine or it was stuck or something. So I said, that's right, Mr. President. Go ahead. So he went and talked to this soldier. God, did he communicate with them and connect with them? And great visit. We came back out in the hallway. And by this time, a young lieutenant had literally run from the room to the desk and grabbed a bottle. We used to call it the blue stuff. It was Purell, but it was just in a blue squeeze bottle. And he comes running back and he's standing there with this thing. And I said, you know, Mr. President, let's put a little bit of Purell in your hand. So the president sticks his left hand out and this young lieutenant proceeds to empty the entire bottle into his palm. And I mean, it is dripping through his fingers on the floor. He's looking at me like I'm an idiot. He's pulling his handkerchief out and he's wiping this stuff off. I look over and John has grabbed the bottle from the lieutenant who, God love him, looked like he was going to need resuscitation himself. And of course, we never said a thing to him. The kid was trying to do the right thing, a great young nurse, trying to do the right thing. And he just got so excited seeing the president do the bottle goop on his hands. And, you know, those kind of stories, there's a thousand. I, I escorted uh, Secretary Rumsfeld in to see uh, a patient the first time. And that was an amazing experience. His, his executive with him, his three-star with him, was a friend of mine from Europe that I knew. And, <clears throat> you know, this, I got the warning. The secretary likes uh, five-by-eight cards, all the information on the soldiers. So, Roger, we had about 10 we were going to have him see. And he walks in to see the first young soldier, great young kid. And the secretary says, hey, uh, Sergeant how are you today? He said, fine, sir. And then there's nothing. And I'm, I'm looking around and, you know, secretary's kind of looking at him. So I kind of jumped. And I said, well, hey, Sergeant Jones, tell us what happened. Jones. I mean, everybody's a Jones. Tell us what happened. Well, this young man, he's he's excited to, to tell a sec deaf what happened to me. He got hit with an IED, a bunch of stuff. And then I, I turned to his spouse, his wife, his young wife. And I said, well, how are you? And she, oh, I'm doing great. I'm over at the Fisher house. And the sec deaf says, what's a Fisher house? And, and John and I, his aide, both jump at the same time to explain the whole Fisher Foundation thing and what's going on with that stuff. So, you know, we finished a tour with the sec deaf. That went well. He was very good. Uh, I got to know him. I got more war stories about him too. But um, about two weeks later, three weeks later, I forget something was going on. And I talked to John and he, he'd gone back to his office and made a $50,000 donation of Fisher Foundation, which he told no one. No one knew about that, except that, you know, after the fact. So you're looking at these young soldiers. They want to tell you what they did. They feel good about their dedication and their sacrifice and because America sends its very best, very best. There were some turbulent challenges at, at Walter Reed that were in the news that, that happened a little bit later. Yeah. And, you know, as professionals and physicians, everybody's going to face something in their career when they're have a significant challenge or some kind of adversity in their life. What kind of advice would you give them in, in dealing with situations that maybe are not in your control and are very challenging? You know what I would say, and I, you know, I don't want to get into the details now, maybe in another podcast, we can talk our way through all of that stuff. And I was the, the commander, I was a certain general at that point, And I knew in my heart that these uh, Washington Post articles weren't right. And it turned out I was correct. But the things that I thought about were, um, and what I would say to commanders under these circumstances is loyalty down, loyalty down, number one. And number two, take the harder right, make the harder right decision. I was watching some of the testimony that I'd already participated in, and I was sitting with my dad in my parents' house in Fairfax, Virginia, and he's watching this thing. He's an old retired Navy seaman captain, a captain in the Navy. And he looked at me and he said, you know, why didn't you just tell them, you know, that you're the commander of MedCon, you're right running a $9 billion uh, worldwide healthcare organization. And I said, uh, Dad, I'm not going to abandon Walter Reed. I mean, they need help. If you look back at some of the news conferences and stuff, I'm, I'm standing in the front. 
loyalty down and telling people, we'll investigate this. I don't think there's any truth to it. We'll investigate it. And I think it's it comes from having a sense of uh, admiration and connection, in this case, to Walter Reed. I knew how wonderful Walter Reed was and what they had done for years, taking care of soldiers, saving lives, making tough decisions, doctors and nurses and medics up all night working. I just wasn't going to let that thing kind of just take care of itself. So, you know, the other thing I, I've, I've said many times, uh, in fact, the dean at, at Albany asked me to tell it to him again so he could use it in a speech. He said, you know, no one can take your integrity. You can only give it away. And I wasn't about to give away my integrity. I was really pretty convinced. I, I learned some lessons that I would do differently next time. But from a, what, a commander facing a tough situation, take the harder right. Always take the harder right. I never had a problem looking at myself in the mirror after that. And, uh, you know, I took some hits over time. And I'm no worse for the wear, I, I would like to think. But anyway, that was that was a tough road. And it was a tough road, not only for Walter Reed, but for the medical department. Amen. I really think they felt abandoned and maligned unfairly. And he's taken us a long time. And, you know, it was in the midst of the BRAC and all the other things that were going on. It was really a mess. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but uh, somebody called me up today and said, hey, listen, here's what's going on. Loyalty down. Don't don't forget, you know, take care of your soldiers, take care of your unit, however big or small, however far away you are from. And then always take the harder right. So you transitioned as the 41st Surgeon General to the chairman of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Albany Medical Center Hospital which you held for 10 years following the Surgeon General position. How were you able to maintain, regain, sustain clinical and surgical knowledge and skills during times of limited patient contact? Is there any advice you would give to physicians who are interested in leadership positions but don't want to stop being a doctor and would like to go back to full-time practice eventually? Wayne, that is such a great question. I'm glad you asked because I really feel very strongly about this. Couple quick comments. One, I used to tell the AMED uh, Medical Corps, you know, if you're not a good doctor, I don't need you. I don't care how many bolo badges you've got, how many you know, combat jumps you've made, or how many, and all of those are very admirable. But if you you can't take care of patients that, that you got no business in the AMED. That's number one. Number two, I had a great young surgeon. Uh, you probably recognize the name, Brian Lyon. I sent down to the Blue Factory for a year as a general surgeon out of lawn stool. And when he came back, I said, you know, Brian, how'd you feel about being down there for a year? He said, sir, if you're good when you leave, you'll be good when you come back. I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. So personally, I had really three episodes. Uh, when I commanded the 10th Med at uh, Fort Drum, New York for three years, I probably saw five patients in three years, I got called to the emergency room for gynecological emergencies. And I returned to a training program at William Beaumont, high-speed, low-drag place with a bunch of great residents in them. One of my graduates, uh, you, you guys might know, Colonel Pete Nielsen was one. Pete Napolitano was another one of my residents. You know, I taught them everything I knew, and that got them through their second-year residency, and then they were on their own. But what I really did was I said to myself, uh, put your hat in your hand. Don't worry about having been a battalion commander, don't worry about being a colonel or a lieutenant colonel. You go back there and you tell the faculty, teach me. You tell the residents, teach me. I bought all new textbooks. I read Williams Obstetrics again, cover to cover, Desai, Spiroff, the oncology and endocrinology books. I, you know, I had always been reading the journals. I was still getting the gray journal and the green journal up in Watertown. But you know, when you're not seeing a patient the next day with that condition or that challenge, it doesn't sink in the same way. I had a great MFM, uh, Andy Robertson, a magnificent REI, Cesar Rosa, I took over as the program director. I even had a young faculty member who'd been one of my residents on my first tour there, Pam Hill, and I was going to the operating room doing abdominal hysterectomy with a resident. And I said to Pam, you know, 
you're, you're scrubbing with me. It's my first case. And she said, oh, Kevin, I, I don't need to. You know how to do it. I said, absolutely not. You're, you're coming to watch me. I realize that a lot of surgery, and you, you two know this as, as, as well as anybody, a lot of it when you do it routinely is almost habit. It's almost subconscious. You got a little bleeder. You got four or five options. You pick one. But when you've been away from it for three years, everything is a conscious decision. I got a bleeder. How do I stop that? Do I clamp it? Do I boviate? Do I put a hemoclip on it? You know, do I tie it? It took me a while. I remember the first time I was on call, I'm standing there in labor and delivery doing checkout and I got a chief resident and, you know, they're doing things I didn't do when I left to go to, to the 10th Med Battalion. Uh, you know, they're giving steroids. I'd never done that before. So I'm asking the chief resident, how do you manage it? So that, that was number one. Uh, about six months away from clinical medicine uh, during a Desert Shield storm. And the next thing I know, poof, on the DCCS at Bragg. And I think every family member at Fort Bragg got pregnant upon the completion of the Desert Shield Desert Storm deployment. And so we were busting at the seams and I was taking call and doing deliveries and, and relearning the specialty there. And then, of course, as you referenced, the last big leap was the 10 years I was in senior leadership. I found out about this job at Albany. I talked to the dean and, and I said, look, I've been away from clinical medicine. I've had this little Walter Reed thing. He said, I, I don't care about that. I just need some leadership in the department. They fired the chairman. I said, well, I, I think I can swing that. Prior to going up there, I went back to Walter Reed, hat in hand. I said to Ernie and a bunch of the guys in the faculty, show me how to do laparoscopic, show me how to get me on a robot. I was doing TVTs. I was doing all kinds of stuff. I went down to Belvoir. I was uh, scrubbing in on C-sections. And again, a lot of this stuff comes back. I'm rereading the textbooks, rereading the stuff. And then when I got up to Albany, and now I'm doing laparoscopic hysterectomies. Well, I'd never done those before. So I tell Peter Cole, chief of gynecology surgery, you know, 10 years my junior, I said, come on in here. And he must have come in. On, and then I'd give him the, you know, the RVUs for the surgeries. So in my mind, it is very clear that you can regain skill skills, regardless of how long you've been out, about 10 years. At one point, I, I was helping back after I relinquished command of launch tool. I was, I was still a regional commander. And all of a sudden, I found a little bit of time in my hands. I called up the chief gynecologist. He said, "Joe, could you use an extra pair of hands and badge hisses? And he, yeah. So I swear to God, first time I'm in there, scrubbed in, just holding a tractor, staying out of the way, keep my mouth shut. You would have thought Elvis was back in the operating I mean, every operating room person in the entire hospital had to stick their head in to see if we needed anything, just so they could see General Kylie scrubbed in. It's unbelievable. And it was a great experience, but you know, that's all I did was scrub. I couldn't practice. So I would be very uh, positive and very encouraging to people that fear that they have lost some skills because they've been deployed and have to come back and do it. And you just, they can't walk back in after six months or a year away and say, I, I know exactly what I'm doing. Um, did it a year ago. I can do it tomorrow. Things change. I've actually given that talk a couple of times at ACOG and some other places too. And I'm a big believer in that you can recover those skills. 41st Surgeon General, you've, you're in the army for 30 years. Looking back, what made you join the Army? How did you get into military medicine? Grant and undergrad, Georgetown Medical School, start the first semester. My father retired Navy captain. He was still on active duty. My father-in-law, and then my father-in-law to be there, my father-in-law was a West Point uh, Army colonel. They both retired in 75. I started uh, medical school in 72. And I knew there were some scholarship programs, and they had gone from an older program. They started this new thing called the HPSB. Now, I kid everybody by saying I clearly knew which side the bread was buttered on. I was dating engaged to and married the daughter of an army colonel. You think I'm going to go join the Navy? So, uh, but the truth was the army started their HPSB program a year ahead of the Navy did. So I went up to Glen, uh, 
Falls up to Walter Reed to interview. And I, I, uh, my father swore me in while he was raking leaves in the backyard, spring of uh, of uh, '73, and they paid for all but the first semester. Tuition was three k a year, but you could buy a Toyota for nineteen hundred dollars. So it's still a lot of money. And all of a sudden, I'm getting a stipend every month. And I'm going on active duty for six weeks with full pay and privileges. And my wife and I both know the first place we can go to is commissary and buy two cases of Denty Moore stew in a can. So we did that for two months. And I mean, so we kind of knew the drill. It was nice to have all that stuff. The active duty for training was wonderful. So it was just one of these things where we'd say, well, let's see how the next assignment goes. I mean, we, we actually uh, look forward to going to Korea. We look forward to come back to El Paso. Minnemeyer, God love him, General Minnemeyer had had some disasters with hospital commanders. One where they had an anesthesiologist. Turned out he, he worked at the VA and then he was working at the Dix Hospital. Turned out he, he wasn't an anesthesiologist and he wasn't a doctor, but he was passing gas and doing spinals in the operating room. They relieved that commander. And then they had a green tank of gas. They hooked up to the ORs at McClellan. It turned out it wasn't oxygen. It was nitrous or something else. So they relieved that commander. So Minnemeyer said, hey, listen, we need to develop commanders. We need develop physician committees. This is before we got into boards and stuff. So I landed up being one of three, uh, Mike Fay, the seventh, Dick Smurz, the 82nd, and Kevin, the 10th med. We were both battalion commanders and division surgeons. So, you know, one gem after another, just, just kept rolling. I never had a bad assignment. I loved putting uniform on. You know, everybody complains about going to the Pentagon. I loved walking into the Pentagon every day. I loved working with the generals. Some of them could be jerks, but none of them were dumb. They were all smart as uh, tax, sharp as tax. So every job just kept getting better and better. Had to move the family around. My oldest daughter, God love her, who I think both of you know now is senior colonel at Madigan in intensivists and a wonderful young lady. She went to three different high schools. My son left uh, after two years at, uh, in Washington, D.C. and went down to Fort Sam to Cole High School down there. So, you know, the family paid a little bit of a price for that. I mean, they got to go to Europe and see Europe and our whole lives. So we could tell them we've been there done that it's you're gonna like it and i think those three kids have shown that so it was just a wonderful career it was just a wonderful time and uh, i just really made some great friends worked with some great people you talked a little bit about your family and one of the nice things about a podcast is that it's going to be recorded for a long time and so let's fast forward to great great grandchildren what is one thing that you would want them to hear on this podcast about you and your career in military medicine? You know, that's a heck of a question. And I have never given that a thought. You know, what's your legacy? What are people going to think about you 50 years from now? Are you going to be a Leonard Wood or what? I guess I'd like them to think that I did the, you know, that I did the best job that I could, that I took the harder right. And then I think particularly as Surgeon General, I served the nation and, and maybe made a little bit of a difference in the success of combat operations, pushing tourniquets on every soldier, the new tourniquet we developed and believe it or not, had the Air Force send packed red blood cells twice a week instead of once a week and drop the shelf life by 14 days or something. I got a Profus deployment system in place so that everybody went once before somebody had to go to and, and, and created some other stuff and supported the war effort. And I, and I guess that's it. Just that, you know, I did the best I could that I took the harder right and maintained loyalty to the organization and was proud to serve. And I hope they'll be proud of me 50 years from now. Well, we've been talking to Dr. Kevin Kiley on War Docs, and we just want to thank you for your time and uh, your insights and stories. Uh, we really enjoyed talking with you. Well, I've enjoyed it too. And again, I congratulate you guys. This is just a wonderful thing. 
Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardox, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.